I, uh, I, I don't think it should ever be taken for granted that uh, we carry with us the hope of the world. Uh, it's an easy thing to talk about when we sit here in service on Sundays and Wednesdays, but do we live our lives on a day-to-day basis showing the world that we actually do believe the hope that we profess? Um, one thing that I, I'm always very careful of whenever, whenever I'm going to teach or preach or whatever, I try very hard never to ask things like, what songs are going to be played, or in this case, I I didn't want to ask Brother Mac what he was going to be speaking on, because at the end of the day, I always want God to have control of the message. Uh, I don't want to uh, get up here and preach a themed message because I know someone else is going to talk about a topic, because the truth is, for all of my intelligence, as limited as may be, is nothing compared to the eternal wisdom of God. And it's that wisdom that we need to seek daily so that we can hear at one point God say, welcome, thou good and faithful servant. Tonight I want to talk to you, and I'm going to try to be very conscientious of the time. Um, I'm going to talk to you on a topic of grace and conviction. Uh, Originally I was going to title this message, A Tale of Two Spirits, because the spirit of grace, we know it's from God, but there is also from that same God a spirit of conviction. I uh, recently had this conversation with one of the ER doctors I work with, and um, things had kind of settled down, and, and we had a little bit of time to kind of chat or whatever. And as I was talking with, with this individual, I was explaining my frustration with how polarized our country and, dare I say, even our world has become. Uh, it seems there is no room for reason and logic, no room for middle ground or compromise. It's, it's either you are this or you are this. Either you believe this or you believe this. When the truth is, is that often with man, things are somewhat on a spectrum. I, I may vote for a particular party, but it doesn't mean I agree with all of the things that they do, right? Unfortunately, the way that our world has become is that without asking, without conversation, without inquiring to hear what the person means or believes, people will immediately jump to a conclusion about what you believe. And that can make it very hard for us to trust other people, to witness to people. There's always this fear of rejection. As I was talking with her, though, the the conversation began to switch And we slowly started talking about Christianity and the church. And at the end of this message, I'm I'm hoping I can get through all of this. At the end of this message, I want to talk specifically about what she said to me. But the conversation sparked something in my mind that I have been thinking about for a very long time. Many times when, when we preach on a message or teach Bible studies and these kind of things, we focus on one particular attribute of God or one particular part of God. So I could get up here and I could do an entire message on grace, talk about how it is the unmerited favor of God, about how that me and my, my sinful flesh could not obtain what only Christ could purchase. And that is all true. God is a gracious God. But we can also say that God is a just judge. And that there are expectations listed in his word that at some point we will all have to stand before God and give an account for. You see, in the world's eyes, this seems like a a, a dichotomy that shouldn't be able to go together. You're saying that God loves me and that God has grace and mercy, 
But then at the same time, you're saying that God is going to judge me. And for the world, that is very hard for them to wrap their mind around. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, and don't worry about standing. I'm going to kind of go through this for, for a sake of time here. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We'll come back to this verse as we kind of move along here, but if I were to ask each one of you right now, what do you believe is the ultimate goal of the enemy? I would likely hear someone quote 1 Peter 5 and 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Or maybe you would reference John chapter 8 verse 44. It says that he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. From Genesis to Revelation, you will find verse after verse after verse of warnings that we are to turn our ear toward God and to turn our ear away from the world. We find over and again God sending messengers to warn people to not be fooled by the lies of the enemy. But all of all the weapons in the devil's arsenal, the most potent weapon that he has is twisting the word of God and getting us to believe something that is not true. Specifically, the most dangerous lie is the lie that has a portion of the truth. Because in that, we feel good. Our emotions feel good. We, we can identify with one piece of that lie. And therefore, because we recognize that one kernel of truth in there, we then believe the rest of it by default. But any statement that is part true, part wrong, in the end is ultimately just wrong. The word of God is absolute. You don't get to choose what parts you believe is true and what's not. You don't get to choose which parts you say, well, I'll follow this, but I'm not going to follow that because I don't like what it says. All of God's word is true. The devil would love nothing more than to convince us that we don't have to live separated lives. We don't have to actually believe all of those things. Just going to church on occasion, that's enough. That's, that's good enough. But what happens is as we begin to judge the word of God through how we feel, because we like the way it feels, then little by little by little we replace the truth of scripture with our emotional belief. And as this continues, righteousness becomes defined by our emotions and the knocking at the door becomes nothing more than a distant sound. Until one day you find that the knocking has ceased altogether. This knocking I'm referring to is when Jesus says he stands at the door knocking, calling for his people to open and let him inside. But God is also a gentleman. He is not going to kick the door in because that's not a relationship. 
God strives for your soul. He, he puts things in your path. He's calling for you at all different moments. He uses disaster as well as blessing for a singular purpose of bringing us, me, you, into relationship with himself. But as our emotions drive us, that knocking at the door doesn't seem so loud anymore. As our definition of truth becomes defined by what we perceive to be right and wrong, the knocking at the door becomes obscured within all the voices of the world. We begin to hear newscasters talking and we will believe their word just because it's said. And yet we, we look at the word of God and say, did it really say that? We are more willing to look to a politician and believe what they say because we like their personality. We like the way they look, their, their history. And yet fail to realize that they are human just as much as we. And that they were born in sin and iniquity just as we were. And that they are fallible and likely to sin just as we are. But God's truth is eternal. Because God is the only one who never lied who has never sinned and is eternal. The word of God is interlaced with words of warning, words that are meant to lead the hearer to a place of conviction. But you see, the issue becomes when we define the word of God and how we think the word means. In this world, if I were to go and say, you need to listen to the conviction of God, what they would say is that's judgmental. You can't tell me what I should feel and believe and not do. That's judgmental. So the word conviction goes from being the love of Christ reaching you in your darkness to a jealous God who is just trying to beat you down. So it's no wonder why the world stands up on TV and in movies and shows and portrays a God that ultimately just wants to punish you. That he doesn't love you. Conviction becomes a tool of man to control the masses instead of the word of God drawing us out of darkness. In our world today, words, facts, seem to be malleable. You may say that this is true, and I ask you why, and you say, well, because I believe it is. But that's not how you measure truth or facts. But we live in a world where we are so sure that we are good individually. And therefore, because we are good, I don't feel conviction because I'm already good. Because our ears slowly, little by little, become desensitized to that voice, that still small voice of conviction calling us to continually work to change our lives to become more like him. Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to kind of skim through some of this. We'll start in verse 2. Listen to what it says. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Now, let me pause here and give you just a tiny bit of context. The book of Hebrews is written specifically to Jews who had converted to Christianity. Now, in all honesty, I don't actually like that explanation because what we are doing today is what God began in Abraham. It's not a, oh, there was a Jewish religion and now there's a Christian religion. No, it is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave in Genesis. But for the sake of clarity, we're talking about individuals who are Jews by birth, 
but have understood the truth of what Christ preached and now have come in alignment with that. So this person who's writing the book of Hebrews is talking to them. Now with that in mind, listen to what he says. But the word preached did not profit them. He's talking about the Jews of old. Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Verse 3, for we which have believed do enter into rest as he said. As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. This passage, when you read these couple of verses on its face, seems a little confusing. Because what does he mean by they've entered into rest or uh, the Jews of old didn't enter into rest? And what, what is he talking about? And then there's this reference specifically to the seventh day of creation. And what we'll see here in just a minute is this. The Jews of the Old Testament, and I'm saying Jews just general. Obviously, there were prophets. There were those who did follow after the voice of God. But as a whole, as a nation in general, they believed that where they were in their life, meaning that they, if they were in the land of promise and they were having blessings, that that is what God was ultimately calling them to. So the Jews believed they had entered into rest because they were now in the promised land. But the reference here about the seventh day is that your job, your work, your calling will not be complete until the flesh is dead. Specifically, when God calls you home, that is when you enter into the eternal rest that's spoken of here. The reason why we have to keep that in the forethought of our mind is because the world will tell you you have achieved where you need to be when you have enough money. You have reached the place where God has called you to when you have the right title, have the biggest house, have the most friends. And yet the author here is trying to remind us that your job, your work is not done while you still walk this earth. God has a plan and a purpose for each of us. And we cannot be so uh, comfortable in the world we live that we say that, well, I'm in the rest now. I don't need to worry about anything else. So now we pick back up here in verse 11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Paul's right here. We, we, we reference these two verses all the time. They're good verses. I agree with it 100%. But if we don't understand that the context of what's being said here is the author speaking to Jews to make sure that they know the only way you can judge whether you are doing right by God or wrong by God is through the word. Because it's the word that judges the intents of your heart. It's the word that will help you divide what is the lie of the world versus the truth of God. And he goes on to say here, verse 13, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. 
seeing that then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What puts us in a position to come before the throne of grace is not your righteousness. It's not my righteousness. What allows us to stand boldly before the throne of grace and mercy is the righteousness of Christ. The man who was tempted in all ways that we are and yet stood fast in the faith and did not sin. And because of that perfection, he is the only one that can grant us grace and mercy. While that may sound like a harsh statement, it's actually awesome. At least I consider it awesome. Because what it says is that I don't have to be in myself perfect to earn the grace and mercy of God. I just need to be in his presence. The presence of God is more important than the, the perfection that we seek as we walk this earth. Seeming to, to try to judge everything that is said and done. That that is going to be the thing that allows us to enter into heaven. But the grace and mercy comes in his presence. Not your perfection or mine. Revelation chapter 1 verse 16 through 18. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now, back up here, what are we talking about? Revelation chapter 1. I love the first verse of Revelation chapter 1. See, the book is called Revelation, singular, not Revelations. See, we look in the book and see all the things that are talked about about the war and the famine and the pestilence. We look at all the things about angels coming up out of a pit and all of that stuff. And many people avoid the book altogether because it's scary. But it's the book of Revelation, singular. That word there means the unveiling, the showing, the understanding. And in verse 1, we understand exactly what is being revealed. It says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book that so many people run away from in fear should be our source of hope. Because you see, in the book, it already tells us what happens in the end. That God's people will be pulled away from this earth and married to the lamb while the chaff is burned here on the threshing floor. We shouldn't fear God coming. We should fear if we are ready or not. God wants us to be ready. That's why this idea of conviction is so important. You see, the difference between conviction and condemnation is this. The devil would love nothing more than to make you feel condemned that you have done too much for too long to too many people and therefore you can never stand in the grace and mercy of God. But we just read that our ability to stand in God's grace and mercy is not because of our righteousness. It's because of his righteousness. But when we listen to that voice of condemnation, we let it begin to build a tear between us and the Spirit until we believe the lie so much that 
We become like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Woe is me. Never going to make it. Those are the worst Christians to stand around. Because there's no hope. There's nothing in them that is exhibiting life and hope. And why would a world want to be like a Christian who has no hope? If we have nothing to offer the world that's better than what they already have, why do we expect that they would listen to us? Listen to what's said here. Now John is standing before Jesus. And he gives this amazing description of the, the image that he sees there. But we won't go through that. Let's just read a couple verses. Verse 16, and he had in his hand, right, right hand the seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Seems like we just talked about what the two-edged sword is. The word, the word that spoke the worlds into existence is also the word that would judge all of mankind. And when I saw him, so he turned around and he saw it says, the countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. I love this, this little section here because when John sees this glorified image of Jesus in the perfection of the presence of God, the only thing John knew to do was to lay down, was to fall over because he realized in comparison to that, I am nothing. In comparison to the strength and the beauty and the perfection of God in me that I am nothing. But Jesus says to him, listen, you don't need to be afraid. But he didn't say don't be afraid because you've overcome death on the grave. He said don't be afraid because I have already overcome death, hell, and the grave. We don't need to be afraid when we walk in Christ because Christ has already accomplished what he set out to do. We just walk in faith, knowing and believing that at the end, we will be with him. Now look over to Revelation chapter 2. John, or G, John is told by Jesus what it is he's going to start to write here in the book of Revelation. And in the end of chapter 1, in the beginning of chapter 2, we get into letters to the seven churches. And listen, the seven churches are not talking about ages and dispensations and that kind of stuff. It is talking about seven literal churches who were active at the time of John who needed to hear a word from God. Now, what's really cool to me is that if you look at the location of all the seven churches, they are all located in modern-day Turkey, minus one which is right outside of Turkey. Why is that important? Because Scripture tells us that Turkey... That place was the seat of Satan. God put his churches directly where the enemy set up shop. Because God loved those people there as much as he did anywhere else. And God does not fear if the enemy claims a place as his. Because God is the one who created it. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. So God said, all right, I see you, devil. I'm going to put my churches right in your backyard and we'll see what happens. So now we have these churches here 
And we read through all of these, and sometimes we look at these churches and we immediately uh, uh, look down on them because each of them had a specific flaw. But I have to tell you a little secret. Each of us still have flaws, right? The love of Christ compels us that he will call out our sins and our mistakes to give us a chance to grow. So let's get into this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. We're going to speak about only one church. And I'm going to kind of start to move over to the last little part of this. Verse 12 says, And to the angels of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Again, we see this exact same phrase over and over. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Now, these two verses seem to indicate they, they weren't doing anything wrong, right? I mean, they were holding fast to the faith. They were teaching and preaching the message. So what's, what's the problem? Listen to what he says here in verse 14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay, we, we need to understand what this is saying because on one hand, he's saying, hey, good job, church. You're holding fast to the faith. You're preaching truth. You're, you're not, like, not giving up. And then yet here at the end, he said, you better repent or I'm coming after you. So what, what's happening here? So when it says that, that you, they had them that had the, the doctrine of Balaam, the story of Balaam can be found in Numbers 22 and 23. And it goes like this. There was a king of the Moabites named Balak. Okay? Balaam was a prophet. Balak came to Balaam because he looked out at the children of Israel and saw how big they were growing, how many people there were, and he was feeling a little threatened. So he wanted to get them cursed so that they couldn't take over his land. He was afraid of them. So he goes to the prophet of God to get that prophet of God to, to curse the people of God. In my mind, I'm like, why does that even make any sense? Why would you, like, that doesn't make any sense to me. But Balaam was bought off. Balak brought Balaam money. There was profits for the prophet. And that money became more important to him than, than the truth of what was being said. So Balaam tries, and we read a very familiar passage where he's riding on a, uh, on a donkey to go to curse the children of Israel, and an angel stands in the center of the street, and at first Balaam cannot see him, but the donkey can. That's pretty bad when the donkey can recognize the spiritual things before we can. God stands in the path and says, no, you're not going to curse my people. I won't allow it. And he stops Balaam at every turn, every attempt to curse the people of God. 
So Balaam has one final trick up his sleeve. He goes to Balak and says, listen, I can't do it. God will not allow me to curse his own people. But I do know a way. What you're going to do is you're going to take the women of the Moabites and you're going to begin to intermingle them with the children of Israel. And as the men of Israel begin to marry the women of the Moabites, they will eventually be led to serve the false gods. You see, the sin of Balaam and of Israel, where it led them to, was compromise. Too often in our own lives, we look at our choices and what we're going to do, and we see something, we recognize, yeah, that's probably not what I really should do. But it's not that bad. So we begin to compromise on little things, and those little things, the longer they stay in our lives, eventually cause us to compromise on truth altogether. And this is exactly what happened to the children of Israel. They had a God protecting them, blessing them, guiding them, and yet they chose to marry into the enemy. And in so doing, the relationship that they began to have with the enemy led them to ignore God's word altogether and to compromise. Okay, so why then, though? What is, what is he saying here, though, to the church? Because he's talking about this, this sin, and yet he's talking to the leaders of this church, and he's telling them to repent. The sin of the church of Pergamos is that they tolerated false teachers. It didn't say that the pastor of the church was the one teaching false doctrine. It didn't say that the pastoral team of the church was preaching these false things. But they also were not putting down the false teachers who were causing the church to begin to go astray. It is not enough for us to walk silently through the world and believe truth and yet allow space for the enemy. And to give off a relationship with those people that are doing sin and Basically, people look at us and say, well, you don't judge them, so I guess you're okay with sin too and that kind of thing. And people begin to believe that the word of God says it's okay to not judge others. We, we shouldn't judge others. But the world takes that as, you can't say that something's wrong. You better not ever point out that's a sin. That's judgmental. God doesn't want you to do that. But the truth is, God judges people against his perfection. But God also has mercy and he brings conviction to the people because he ultimately loves them and wants them to change. The reason that, that mankind has such a hard time understanding this kind of dual nature of God where he is a just judge who will bring about punishment and yet at the same time a loving, merciful God who reaches for people is because we view God's actions through our emotions. In our emotions, we look at people and judge them as good or bad based on individual acts alone. We see the external, but God sees the heart. And therefore, he is the only one who is able to do both, to judge, to judge man, but also reach for man and bring about salvation. The second part of this uh, topic, if you will, we're talking about grace and conviction. Conviction is something that, church, we have to recognize is biblical. 
and that we need. I never want to be in a place where I don't feel God calling me to change. Because I know that while I walk on this earth, I am not perfect. There is always something else that I can improve on and be more like Christ. So I need the voice of conviction in my life. And when you get to a place where you're like, man, I feel good, and you feel no conviction ever to change anything, you might want to start praying. Because that's a scary place to be, to no longer hear the God of this universe calling you closer to him and away from the world. So this gets now to the specific thing that I had talked about. We're going to close. We're going to read just a few verses in Ephesians 2, and we're going to wrap this up here. This, the, the conversation that I was having with this particular individual, and we started talking about church. This person was raised, was raised in the Catholic Church, and the biggest issue that she had was she said every time when there would be communion, there's these preset sayings, if you will, that are always said in a call and response type situation. And the priest would always get up there before communion and say, you are not worthy, but only speak the word. Now, on its surface, I actually tend to, tend to agree with that, right? That in my flesh, I am not worthy, but I need Christ. But here was the issue that she had. She said, service after service, year after year, I heard people tell me I am not worthy, but I never heard how God can make me become worthy. And so all I began to believe is that I am a worthless sinner who has no hope of change and will always be that bad person. So what is the point? If God looks at me as this, this castaway person who has no chance of ever becoming good, why would I keep coming time and again to just hear how lousy I am? But you see, just like how there are prosperity teachers who talk about grace in the regards of do whatever you want, it doesn't matter, God loves you, you're fine, there's no condemnation, God wants you to be happy, live your best life now. There are unfortunately also preachers who stand up and say God wants you to know that you are worthless and that you will never be good enough for God, that you can never make it into heaven on your own. What happens is there are some truths intermingled in there that we need God's grace. But sometimes these individuals preach God with such hatred that you never experience the love or the grace or the mercy. And just as much as you need conviction, you need grace and mercy also. Because I know that I make mistakes way more than I would like to. I know that I do not measure up to the perfection of God's standard. So I am eternally grateful that God in his mercy and love says, it's okay, Jeremy, get back up. Let's go again. You see, I fear that too many within churches across this country and sadly to say across Pentecost have heard so many messages about how bad they are without hearing about how good God is and his love that they begin to come, become condemned and feel hopeless. And I'm going to tell you there is no worse thing that you could ever do in your spiritual life than to truly believe that you are hopeless. There is nothing worse you can do.
In Ephesians chapter 2, I'm not going to read it because we're here up against time, but in Ephesians 2, 1 through 14, it talks about how that it was God's grace and mercy that led us out of sin and into his perfection. But as we all stand, I actually, I want to close this message by telling you a very, very short story. And it was actually, it was an experiment that was done. But I think it illustrates perfectly the idea of, of, of that though we need God's conviction and though we need God to continually draw us, we must also recognize that we have hope through God. There was this experiment done quite some time back between two sets of rats. On one hand, they had a group of domesticated rats. And on the other hand, they had a group of wild rats, undomesticated rats, which I don't really understand how you domesticate rats, but my daughter seems that she can do it. So they take these two sets of rats and they do this experiment. They get this, this big beaker of water and fill it all the way up to the very top. And they take the domesticated rats and they drop it in the water. And an amazing thing happens. On average, those rats could tread water for up to 40 hours. I can't even understand that. Like, I love swimming, but like 10 minutes treading water, I'm done. 40 hours. But then they did the experiment with the undomesticated rats, the wild rats. They dropped them in, and within 10 minutes, they began to sink. But here's the amazing part. As those rats began to sink, someone reached down, picked them up out of the water, dried them off, gave them a little bit of food and attention. And then just a short time later, they took those same rats, put them back in the water, and they tread water for 40 hours. You see, when you have no hope, you cannot go through all of the junk in this world because all you see is such destruction and despair. What is the point of going on? And 10 minutes in, you are done. But when you have experienced God reach down in your situation, in your time of despair, in your time of need, when you felt that hand of salvation pull you out, and show you love that you never had from a physical uh, human person before. When you see that God is for you and not against you. When you realize that God died on the cross for you as well as me. God loves you from the foundation of the world. It's when you get that hope in here. That you understand what the verse means that says, Though I'm pressed on all sides, I'm not crushed. Though I'm persecuted, though they lie about me, though they talk about me, though I do stupid things, I know I'm not destroyed because there is always hope of a Savior's hand reaching down and pulling me out of my pit of despair. So as we close tonight, I encourage you to listen to the voice of God's conviction, but just as strongly I want you to understand you have because the God of the universe is always standing there with an outstretched hand. I don't want you to drown. I don't want you to be overcome by this world. I want you to live. Let's pray. God, I am so grateful. I am grateful for your word that looks at this sinner's heart 
and helps me to see what I need to put aside, the, the, the lies of this world that would condemn me, but also shows me the truth of your word that brings life. And Lord, I pray as we are in such a wicked time, that you said there would be perilous times, that we look around and we see all the wickedness, that despite all of that, that we know that we have hope in you. And though one day this world will burn with your judgment, my soul will rest in peace with you because your hand has reached for me. I thank you for your strength and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love you guys and we'll see you on Sunday.